Chapter 17 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Chapter 17 I turn out a worthless fellow. My good fortune. I become a rich nobleman. With an education which ought to have ensured me an honorable standing in the world, with some intelligence, wit, good literary and scientific knowledge, and endowed with those accidental physical qualities which are such a good passport into society, I found myself, at the age of twenty, the mean follower of a sublime art, in which, if great talent is rightly admired, mediocrity is as rightly despised. I was compelled by poverty to become a member of a musical band, in which I could expect neither esteem nor consideration, and I was well aware that I should be the laughing-stock of the persons who had known me as a doctor in divinity, as an ecclesiastic, and as an officer in the army, and had welcomed me in the highest society. I knew all that, for I was not blind to my position, but contempt, the only thing to which I could not have remained indifferent, never showed itself anywhere under a form tangible enough for me to have no doubt of my being despised, and I set it at defiance, because I was satisfied that contempt is due only to cowardly, mean actions, and I was conscious that I had never been guilty of any. As to public esteem, which I have been ever anxious to secure, my ambition was slumbering, and satisfied with being my own master, I enjoyed my independence without puzzling my head about the future. I felt that, in my first profession, as I was not blessed with the vocation necessary to it, I should have succeeded only by dint of hypocrisy, and I should have been despicable in my own estimation, even if I had seen the purple mantle on my shoulders, for the greatest dignities cannot silence a man's own conscience. If, on the other hand, I had continued to seek fortune in a military career, which is surrounded by a halo of glory, but is otherwise the worst of professions for the constant self-abnegation, for the complete surrender of one's will, which passive obedience demands, I should have required a patience to which I could not lay claim, as every kind of injustice was revolting to me, and as I could not bear to feel myself dependent. Besides, I was of opinion that a man's profession, whatever it might be, ought to supply him with enough money to satisfy all his wants, and the very poor pay of an officer would never have been sufficient to cover my expenses, because my education had given me greater wants than those of officers in general. By scraping my violin I earned enough to keep myself without requiring anybody's assistance, and I have always thought that the man who can support himself is happy. I grant that my profession was not a brilliant one, but I did not mind it, and, calling prejudices all the feelings which rose in my breast against myself, I was not long in sharing all the habits of my degraded comrades. When the play was over, I went with them to the drinking booth, which we often left intoxicated to spend the night in houses of ill fame. When we happened to find these places already tenanted by other men, we forced them by violence to quit the premises, and defrauded the miserable victims of prostitution of the mean salary the law allows them, after compelling them to yield to our brutality. 
our scandalous proceedings often exposed us to the greatest danger. We would very often spend the whole night rambling about the city, inventing and carrying into execution the most impertinent practical jokes. One of our favorite pleasures was to unmoor the patricians' gondolas, and let them float at random along the canals, enjoying by anticipation all the curses that gondoliers would not fail to indulge in. We would rouse up hurriedly, in the middle of the night, an honest midwife, telling her to hasten to Madame So-and-so, who, not even being pregnant, was sure to tell her that she was a fool when she called at the house. We did the same with physicians, whom we often sent half-dressed to some nobleman who was enjoying excellent health. The priests fared no better. We would send them to carry the last sacraments to married men who were peacefully slumbering near their wives, and not even thinking of extreme unction. We were in the habit of cutting the wires of the bells in every house, and if we chanced to find a gate open, we would go up the stairs in the dark and frighten the sleeping inmates by telling them very loudly that the house door was not closed, after which we would go down, making as much noise as we could, and leave the house with the gate wide open. During a very dark night, we formed a plot to overturn the large marble table of St. Angelo's Square, on which it is said that in the days of the League of Cambrai, the commissaries of the Republic were in the habit of paying the bounty to the recruits who engaged the fight under the standard of St. Mark, a circumstance which secured for the table a sort of public veneration. Whenever we could contrive to get into a church tower, we thought it great fun to frighten all the parish by ringing the alarm bell, as if some fire had broken out. But that was not all. We always cut the bell ropes, so that in the morning the church wardens had no means of summoning the faithful to early mass. Sometimes we would cross the canal, each of us in a different gondola, and take to our heels without paying as soon as we landed on the opposite shore, in order to make the gondoliers run after us. The city was alive with complaints, and we laughed at the useless search made by the police to find out those who disturbed the peace of the inhabitants. We took good care to be careful, for if we had been discovered, we stood a very fair chance of being sent to practice rowing at the expense of the Council of Ten. We were seven, sometimes eight, because, being much attached to my brother Francois, I gave him a share now and then in our nocturnal orgies. But at last fear put a stop to our criminal jokes, which in those days I used to call only the frolics of young men. This is the amusing adventure which closed our exploits. In every one of the seventy-two parishes of the city of Venice, there is a large public house called Magazino. It remains open all night, and wine is retailed there at a cheaper price than in all the other drinking houses. People can likewise eat in the Magazino, but they must obtain what they want from the pork butcher nearby who has the exclusive sale of eatables, and likewise keeps his shop open throughout the night. The pork butcher is usually a very poor cook, but he is cheap. Poor people are willingly satisfied with him, and these resorts are considered very useful to the lower class. The nobility, the merchants, even workmen in good circumstances, are never seen in the magazino, for cleansiness is not exactly worshipped in such places. Yet there are a few private rooms which contain a table surrounded with benches, in which a respectable family or a few friends can enjoy themselves in a decent way. It was during the carnival of 1745, after midnight, we were, all the eight of us, rambling about together with our masks on, 
in quest of some new sort of mischief to amuse us, and we went into the magazino of the parish of the Holy Cross to get something to drink. We found the public room empty, but in one of the private chambers we discovered three men quietly conversing with a young and pretty woman, and enjoying their wine. Our chief, a noble Venetian, belonging to the Balbi family, said to us, It would be a good joke to carry off those three blockheads, and to keep the pretty woman in our possession. He immediately explained his plan, and under cover of our masks we entered their room, Balbi at the head of us. Our sudden appearance rather surprised the good people, but you may fancy their astonishment when they heard Balbi say to them, Under penalty of death, and by order of the Council of Ten, I command you to follow us immediately, without making the slightest noise. As to you, my good woman, you need not be frightened. You will be escorted to your house. When he had finished his speech, two of us got hold of the woman to take her where our chief had arranged beforehand, and the others seized the three poor fellows, who were trembling all over, and had not the slightest idea of opposing any resistance. The waiter of the magazino came to be paid, and our chief gave him what was due, enjoining silence under penalty of death. We took our three prisoners to a large boat. Balbi went to the stern, ordered the boatman to stand at the bow, and told him he need not inquire where we were going, that he would steer himself whichever way he thought fit. Not one of us knew where Balbi wanted to take the three poor devils. He sails all along the canal, gets out of it, takes several turnings, and, in a quarter of an hour, we reach St. George, where Balbi lands our prisoners, who are delighted to find themselves at liberty. After this, the boatman is ordered to take us to St. Genevieve, where we land after paying for the boat. We proceed at once to Balombo Square, where my brother and another of our band were waiting for us with our lovely prisoner, who was crying. Do not weep, my beauty, says Balbi to her. We will not hurt you. We intend only to take some refreshment at the Rialto, and then we will take you home in safety. Where is my husband? Never fear, you shall see him again to-morrow. Comforted by that promise, and as gentle as a lamb, she followed us to the two swords. We ordered a good fire in a private room, and everything we wanted to eat and drink having been brought to us, we sent the waiter away, and remain alone. We take off our masks, and the sight of eight young healthy faces seems to please the beauty we had so unceremoniously carried off. We soon managed to reconcile her to her fate by the gallantry of our proceedings, encouraged by a good supper and by the stimulus of wine, prepared by our compliments and by a few kisses. She realizes what is in store for her and does not seem to have any unconquerable objection. Our chief, as a matter of right, claims the privilege of opening the ball, and by dint of sweet words he overcomes the very natural repugnance she feels at consummating the sacrifice in so numerous company. She, doubtless, thinks the offering agreeable, for when I present myself as the priest appointed to sacrifice a second time to the god of love, she receives me almost with gratitude, and she cannot conceal her joy when she finds out that she is destined to make us all happy. My brother Francois alone exempted himself from paying the tribute, saying that he was ill, the only excuse which could render his refusal valid, for we had established as a law that every member of our society was bound to do whatever was done by the others. After that fine exploit, we put on our masks, 
and the bill being paid, escorted the happy victim to St. Job, where she lived, and did not leave her till we had seen her safe in her house, and the street door closed. My readers may imagine whether we felt inclined to laugh when the charming creature bade us good night, thanking us all with perfect good faith. Two days afterwards, our nocturnal orgy began to be talked of. The young woman's husband was a weaver by trade, and so were his two friends. They joined together to address a complaint to the Council of Ten. The complaint was candidly written and contained nothing but the truth, but the criminal portion of the truth was veiled by a circumstance which must have brought a smile on the grave countenances of the judges, and highly amused the public at large. The complaint setting forth that the eight masked men had not rendered themselves guilty of any act disagreeable to the wife, and went on to say that the two men who had carried her off had taken her to such a place where they had, an hour later, been met by the other six, and that they had all repaired to the two swords where they had spent an hour in drinking. The said lady, having been handsomely entertained by the eight masked men, had been escorted to her house, where she had been politely requested to excuse the joke perpetrated upon her husband. The three plaintiffs had not been able to leave the island of St. George until daybreak, and the husband, on reaching his house, had found his wife quietly asleep in her bed. She had informed him of all that had happened. She complained of nothing but of the great fright she had experienced on account of her husband, and on that count she entreated justice and the punishment of the guilty parties. That complaint was comic throughout, for the three rogues showed themselves very brave in writing, stating that they would certainly have not given way so easily if the dread authority of the council had not been put forth by the leader of the band. The document produced three different results. In the first place, it amused the town. In the second, all the idlers of Venice went to St. Job to hear the account of the adventure from the lips of the heroine herself, and she got many presents from her numerous visitors. In the third place, the Council of Ten offered a reward of five hundred ducats to any person giving such information as would lead to the arrest of the perpetrators of the practical joke, even if the informer belonged to the band, providing he was not the leader. The offer of that reward would have made us tremble if our leader, precisely the one who alone had no interest in turning informer, had not been a patrician. The rank of Balbi quieted my anxiety at once, because I knew that, even supposing one of us were vile enough to betray our secret for the sake of the reward, the tribunal would have done nothing in order not to implicate a patrician. There was no cowardly traitor amongst us, although we were all poor, but fear had its effect, and our nocturnal pranks were not renewed. Three or four months afterwards, the Chevalier Nicholas Iron, then one of the inquisitors, astonished me greatly by telling me the whole story, giving the names of all the actors. He did not tell me whether any one of the band had betrayed the secret, and I did not care to know, but I could clearly see the characteristic spirit of the aristocracy, for which the solo mihi is the supreme law. Towards the end of April of the year 1746, Monsieur Girolamo Cornaro, the eldest son of the family Cornario de la Riene, married a daughter of the house of Soranzo de St. Paul, and I had the honor of being present at the wedding, as a fiddler. 
I played the violin in one of the numerous bands engaged for the balls which were given for three consecutive days in the Saranzo Palace. On the third day, towards the end of the dancing, an hour before daybreak, feeling tired, I left the orchestra abruptly, and as I was going down the stairs I observed a senator, wearing his red robes, on the point of getting into a gondola. In taking his handkerchief out of his pocket, he let a letter drop on the ground. I picked it up, and coming up to him just as he was going down the steps, I handed it to him. He received it with many thanks, and inquired where I lived. I told him, and he insisted upon my coming with him in the gondola, saying that he would leave me at my house. I accepted gratefully, and sat down near him. A few minutes afterwards he asked me to rub his left arm, which, he said, was so benumbed that he could not feel it. I rubbed it with all my strength, but he told me in a sort of indistinct whisper that the numbness was spreading all along the left side, and that he was dying. I was greatly frightened. I opened the curtain, took the lantern, and found him almost insensible, and the mouth drawn on one side. I understood that he was seized with an apoplectic stroke, and called out to the gondoliers to land me at once, in order to procure a surgeon to bleed the patient. I jumped out of the gondola, and found myself on the very spot where three years before I had taught Rosetta such a forcible lesson. I inquired for a surgeon at the first coffee-house, and ran to the house that was pointed out to me. I knocked as hard as I could. The door was at last opened, and I made the surgeon follow me in his dressing-gown as far as the gondola which was waiting. He bled the senator while I was tearing my shirt to make the compress and the bandage. The operation being performed, I ordered the gondoliers to row as fast as possible, and we reached St. Marina. The servants were roused up, and taking the sick man out of the gondola, we carried him to his bed, almost dead. Taking everything upon myself, I ordered a serpent to hurry out for a physician, who came in a short time, and ordered the patient to be bled again, thus approving the first bleeding prescribed by me. Thinking I had the right to watch the sick man, I settled myself near his bed to give him every care he required. An hour later, two noblemen, friends of the senator, came in, one a few minutes after the other. They were in despair. They had inquired about the accident from the gondoliers, and having been told that I knew more than they did, they loaded me with questions which I answered. They did not know who I was, and did not like to ask me whilst I thought it better to preserve a modest silence. The patient did not move. His breathing alone showed that he was still alive. Fomentations were constantly applied, and the priest who had been sent for, and was of very little use during such circumstances, seemed to be there only to see him die. All visitors were sent away by my advice, and the two noblemen and myself were the only persons in the sick man's room. At noon we partook silently, and some dinner which was served in the sick-room. In the evening one of the two friends told me that if I had any business to attend to I could go, because they would both pass the night on a mattress near the patient. And I, sir, I said, will remain near his bed in this armchair, for if I went away the patient would die, and he will live as long as I am near him. This sententious answer struck them with astonishment, as I expected it would, and they looked at each other in great surprise. We had supper, and in the little conversation we had, I gathered the information that the senator, their friend, was Monsieur de Bragadin, 
the only brother of the procurator of that name. He was celebrated in Venice, not only for his eloquence and his great talents as a statesman, but also for the gallantries of his youth. He had been very extravagant with women, and more than one of them had committed many follies for him. He had gambled and lost a great deal, and his brother was his most bitter enemy, because he was infatuated with the idea that he had tried to poison him. He had accused him of that crime before the Council of Ten, which, after an investigation of eight months, had brought in a verdict of not guilty. But that just sentence, although given unanimously by that high tribunal, had not the effect of destroying his brother's prejudices against him. Monsieur de Bragadin, who was perfectly innocent of such a crime and impressed by an unjust brother who deprived him of half his income, spent his days like an amiable philosopher, surrounded by his friends, amongst whom were the two noblemen who were then watching him. One belonged to the Dandolo family, the other was a Barbaro, and both were excellent men. Monsieur de Bragadin was handsome, learned, cheerful, and most kindly disposed. He was then about fifty years old. The physician who attended him was named Taro. He thought, by some peculiar train of reasoning, that he could cure him by applying a mercurial ointment to the chest, to which no one raised any objection. The rapid effect of the remedy delighted the two friends, but it frightened me, for in less than twenty-four hours the patient was laboring under great excitement of the brain. The physician said that he had expected that effect, but on the following day the remedy would act less on the brain and diffuse its beneficial action through the whole of the system, which required to be invigorated by a proper equilibrium in the circulation of the fluids. At midnight the patient was in a state of high fever and a fearful state of irritation. I examined him closely and found him hardly able to breathe. I roused up his two friends and declared that, in my opinion, the patient would die unless the fatal ointment was at once removed. Without waiting for their answer, I bared his chest, took off the plaster, washed the skin carefully with lukewarm water, and in less than three minutes he breathed freely and fell into a quiet sleep. Delighted with such a fortunate result, we lay down again. The physician came very early in the morning and was much pleased to see his patient so much better. But when Monsieur Dandolo informed him what had been done, he was angry, saying it was enough to kill his patient, and asked who had been so audacious as to destroy the effect of his prescription. Monsieur de Bragadin, speaking for the first time, said to him, Doctor, the person who has delivered me from your mercury, which was killing me, is a more skilled physician than you. And, saying these words, he pointed to me. It would be hard to say who was the more astonished. The doctor, when he saw an unknown young man, whom he must have taken for an impostor, declared more learned than himself, or I, when I saw myself transformed into a physician at a moment's notice. I kept silent, looking very modest, but hardly able to control my mirth, whilst the doctor was staring at me with a mixture of astonishment and of spite evidently thinking me some bold quack who had tried to supplant him. At last, turning towards Monsieur de Bragadin, he told him coldly that he would leave him in my hands. He was taken at his word. He went away, and, behold, I had become the physician of the most illustrious member of the Venetian Senate. I must confess that I was very glad of it, 
and I told my patient that a proper diet was all he needed, and that nature, assisted by the approaching fine season, would do the rest. The dismissed physician related the affair throughout the town, and, as Monsieur de Bragadin was rapidly improving, one of his relations who came to see him told him that everybody was astonished at his having chosen for his physician a fiddler from the theater. But the senator put a stop to his remarks by answering that a fiddler could know more than all the doctors in Venice, and that he owed his life to me. The worthy nobleman considered me as his oracle. His two friends listened to me with the deepest attention. Their infatuation encouraged me. I spoke like a learned physician. I dogmatized. I quoted authors whom I had never read. Monsieur de Bragadin, who had the weakness to believe in the occult sciences, told me one day that, for a young man of my age, he thought my learning too extensive, and that he was certain that I was the possessor of some supernatural endowment. He entreated me to tell him the truth. What extraordinary things will sometimes occur from mere chance or from the force of circumstances? Unwilling to hurt his vanity by telling him that he was mistaken, I took the wild resolution of informing him, in the presence of his two friends, that I possessed a certain numeral calculus which gave answers, also in numbers, to any questions I liked to put. Monsieur de Bragadin said that it was Solomon's key, vulgarly called Kabbalistic science, and he asked me from whom I had learnt it. From an old hermit, I answered, who lives in the Carpegna Mountains, and whose acquaintance I made quite by chance when I was a prisoner in the Spanish army. The hermit, remarked the senator, has, without informing you of it, linked an invisible spirit to the calculus he has taught you, for simple numbers cannot have the power of reason. You possess a real treasure, and you may derive great advantages from it. I do not know, I said, in what way I can make my science useful, because the answers given by the numerical figures are often so obscure that I have felt discouraged, and I have very seldom tried to make use of my calculus. Yet it is very true that, if I had not formed my pyramid, I should never have had the happiness of knowing your excellency. Well, how so? On the second day, during the festivities of the Saranzo Palace, I inquired of my oracle whether I should meet at the ball anyone whom I should not care to see. The answer I obtained was this. Leave the ballroom at precisely four o'clock. I obeyed implicitly and met your excellency. The three friends were astounded. Monsieur Dandolo asked me whether I would answer a question he would ask, the interpretation of which would belong only to him, as he was the only person acquainted with the subject of the question. I declared myself quite willing, for it was necessary to brazen it out, after having ventured as far as I had done. He wrote the question and gave it to me. I read it. I could not understand either the subject or the meaning of the words, but it did not matter. I had to give an answer. If the question was so obscure that I could not make out the sense of it, it was natural that I should not understand the answer. I therefore answered in ordinary figures, four lines of which he alone could be the interpreter, not caring much, at least in appearance, how they would be understood. Monsieur Dandolo read them twice over, seemed astonished, said it was all very plain to him, it was divine, it was unique, it was a gift from heaven, the numbers being 
only the vehicle, but the answer emanating, evidently, from an immortal spirit. Monsieur Dandolo was so well pleased that his two friends very naturally wanted, also, to make an experiment. They asked questions on all sorts of subjects, and my answers, perfectly unintelligible to myself, were all held as divine by them. I congratulated them on their success, and congratulated myself in their presence upon being the possessor of a thing to which I had until then attached no importance whatsoever, but which I promised to cultivate carefully, knowing that I could thus be of some service to their excellencies. They all asked me how long I would require to teach them the rules of my sublime calculus. Not very long, I answered, and I will teach you as you wish, although the hermit assured me that I would die suddenly, within three days, if I communicated my science to anyone. But I have no faith whatever in that prediction. Monsieur de Bragadin, who believed in it more than I did, told me in a serious tone that I was bound to have faith in it and from that day they never asked me again to teach them. They very likely thought that, if they could attach me to them, it would answer the purpose as well as if they possessed the science themselves. Thus I became the hierophant of these three worthy and talented men, who, in spite of their literary accomplishments, were not wise, since they were infatuated with occult and fabulous sciences, and believed in the existence of phenomena impossible in the moral as well as in the physical order of things. They believed that through me they possessed the Philosopher's Stone, the universal panacea, the intercourse with all the elementary, heavenly, and infernal spirits, and they had no doubt whatever that, thanks to my sublime science, they could find out the secrets of every government in Europe. After they had assured themselves of the reality of my Kabbalistic science by questions respecting the past, they decided to turn it to some use by consulting it upon the present and upon the future. I had no difficulty in showing myself a good guesser, because I always gave answers with a double meaning, one of the meanings being carefully arranged by me, so as not to be understood until after the event. In that manner, my Kabbalistic science, like the oracle of Delphi, could never be found in fault. I saw how easy it must have been for the ancient heathen priests to impose upon ignorant and therefore credulous mankind. I saw how easy it will always be for impostors to find dupes, and I realized, even better than the Roman orator, why two augurs could never look at each other without laughing. It was because they both had an equal interest in giving importance to the deceit they perpetrated, and from which they derived such immense profits. But what I could not, and probably never shall understand, was the reason for which the fathers, who were not so simple, or so ignorant as our evangelists, did not feel able to deny the divinity of oracles, and, in order to get out of the difficulty, ascribe them to the devil. They would never have entertained such a strange idea if they had been acquainted with Kabbalistic science. My three worthy friends were like holy fathers. They had intelligence and wit but they were superstitious and no philosophers. But, although believing fully in my oracles, they were too kind-hearted to think them the work of the devil, and it suited their natural goodness better to believe my answers inspired by some heavenly spirit. They were not only good Christians and faithful to the church, but even real devotees and full of scruples. 
they were not married, and, after having renounced all commerce with women, they had become the enemies of the female sex, perhaps a strong proof of the weakness of their minds. They imagined that chastity was the condition sine quo non, exacted by the spirits from those who wish to have intimate communication or intercourse with them. They fancied that spirits excluded women, and vice versa. With all these oddities, the three friends were truly intelligent and even witty, and at the beginning of my acquaintance with them, I could not reconcile these antagonistic points. But a prejudiced mind cannot reason well, and the faculty of reasoning is the most important of all. I often laughed when I heard them talk on religious matters. They would ridicule those whose intellectual faculties were so limited that they could not understand the mysteries of religion. The incarnation of the word, they would say, was a trifle for God, and therefore easy to understand, and the resurrection was so comprehensible that it did not appear to them wonderful, because, as God cannot die, Jesus Christ was naturally certain to rise again. As for the Eucharist, transubstantiation, the real presence, it was all no mystery to them, but palpable evidence, and yet they were not Jesuits. They were in the habit of going to confession every week without feeling the slightest trouble about their confessors, whose ignorance they kindly regretted. They thought themselves bound to confess only what was sin in their opinion, and in that, at least, they reasoned with good sense. With those three extraordinary characters, worthy of esteem and respect for their moral qualities, their honesty, their reputation, and their age, as well as for their noble birth, I spent my days in a very pleasant manner, although in their thirst for knowledge they often kept me hard at work for ten hours running, all four of us being locked up together in a room, and unapproachable to everybody, even to friends or relatives. I contemplated the conquest of their friendship, by relating to them the whole of my life, only with some proper reserve, so as not to lead them into any capital sins. I confess candidly that I deceived them, as the Papa del Demopolo used to deceive the Greeks, who applied to him for the oracles of the Virgin. I certainly did not act towards them with a true sense of honesty, but if the reader to whom I confess myself is acquainted with the world and with the spirit of society, I entreat him to think before judging me, and perhaps I may meet with some indulgence at his hands. I might be told that if I had wished to follow the rules of pure morality, I ought either to have declined intimate intercourse with them, or to have undeceived them. I cannot deny these premises, but I will answer that I was only twenty years of age. I was intelligent, talented, and had been a poor fiddler. I should have lost my time in trying to cure them of their weakness. I should not have succeeded, for they would have laughed in my face, deplored my ignorance, and the result of it all would have been my dismissal. Besides, I had no mission, no right, to constitute myself an apostle, and if I had heroically resolved on leaving them as soon as I knew them to be foolish visionaries, I should have shown myself a misanthrope, the enemy of those worthy men for whom I could procure innocent pleasures, and my own enemy at the same time, because, as a young man, I liked to live well, and to enjoy all the pleasures natural to youth and to a good constitution. By acting in that manner, I should have failed in common politeness. I should perhaps have caused or allowed Monsieur de Bragadin's death, and I should have exposed those three honest men to becoming the victims of the first bold cheat, who, ministering to their monomania, 
might have won their favor, and would have ruined them by inducing them to undertake the chemical operations of the great work. There is also another consideration, dear reader, and as I love you, I will tell you what it is. An invincible self-love would have prevented me from declaring myself unworthy of their friendship, either by my ignorance or by my pride, and I should have been guilty of great rudeness if I had ceased to visit them. I took, at least it seemed so to me, the best, the most natural, the noblest decision, if we consider the disposition of their mind, when I decided upon the plan of conduct which ensured me the necessaries of life, and of those necessities, who could be a better judge than your very humble servant? Through the friendship of those three men, I was certain of obtaining consideration and influence in my own country. Besides, I found it very flattering to my vanity to become the subject of the speculative chattering of empty fools who, having nothing else to do, and always trying to find out the cause of every moral phenomena they meet with, which their narrow intellect cannot understand. People racked their brain in Venice, trying to find out how my intimacy with three men of that high character could possibly exist. They were wrapped up in heavenly aspirations. I was a world's devotee. They were very strict in their morals. I was thirsty of all pleasures. At the beginning of summer, Monsieur de Bragadin was once more able to take his seat in the Senate, and the day before he went out for the first time, he spoke to me thus. Whoever you may be, I am indebted to you for my life. Your first protectors wanted to make you a priest, a doctor, an advocate, a soldier, and ended by making a fiddler of you. Those persons did not know you. God has evidently instructed your guardian angel to bring you to me. I know you and appreciate you. If you will be my son, you have only to acknowledge me for your father and for the future until my death. I will treat you as my own child. Your apartment is ready. You may send your clothes. You shall have a servant, a gondola at your orders, my own table, and ten sequins a month. It is the sum I used to receive from my father when I was your age. You need not think of the future. Think only of enjoying yourself, and take me as your adviser in everything that may happen to you in everything you may wish to undertake, and you may be certain of always finding me your friend. I threw myself at his feet to assure him of my gratitude and embraced him, calling him my father. He folded me in his arms, called me his dear son. I promised to love him and to obey him. His two friends, who lived in the same palace, embraced me affectionately, and we swore eternal fraternity. Such is the history of my metamorphosis, and of the lucky stroke which, taking me from the vile profession of a fiddler, raised me to the rank of a grandee. End of chapter 17